Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, you're going to hear several different things. You're going to hear about another correspondence from my dad during World War II and an experience I recently had in Washington, D.C. Somehow they tie together. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. In the shoebox filled with Dad's letters from World War II... I found his very first correspondence in March 1943. It's a postcard from Fort Devens, Massachusetts, from back when the abbreviation for Massachusetts was M-A-S-S rather than just the two-letter M-A, and it shows a painting of the Post Theater. On it is written, Dear folks, got here about 9.15 An army truck brought us to the fort. We were then issued raincoats and toilet kits, then bedding and overshoes. Boy, we sure needed them. Very muddy here. Learned how to make a bed, army style. Just got through eating. Pretty good food. More later. Signed, Mo, M-O-E. My dad's name is... Charles Murray Bernier, and uh, evidently he had several first names. I never knew him as Mo. I never heard anyone call him Mo, but that was evidently a, a, a nickname, a term of endearment back then. On the postcard, there's there's no zip code. There's no charge because mail was free for soldiers back then, and he had no idea what he was getting into. Fast forward a couple of months to May 18th, 1943, a Tuesday, and there's a letter on which the address is scratched out and, uh, and, and changed, evidently. My grandparents moved during that time. Dear Mom, Dad, Kay, and Jack, his younger brother, My father was the oldest of three siblings. Here's a few lines from your still-in-Texas son. Fellows are leaving here weekly for school to Camp Crowder, and my hopes of Monmouth are fading. However, there may yet be a chance. I remember asking him about that, and he was talking about a a school that he thought he might be able to get into at, at Monmouth. Well, how do you like the new house? I'll bet it's swell compared to the old one. It certainly seems funny not to be addressing my letters to Ten Pond anymore. I suppose you miss it already. I won't know anybody when I go home now. You must be happy to be down there because you've always wanted to be. And uh, I'm not sure what caused the move. Uh, Dad and I never talked about that, but he's going back and forth between missing it and being happy to be there and and this this starts 
a theme that I found in my father's letters having to do with loneliness and and a feeling of, of not being connected to something. It continues, I haven't heard from the fellows lately except Carmi. He's written me twice in a week, so I'm going to write to him next. When you were at Pond Street, I figured there wasn't any need of writing to them because they were always up the house. Now you've added names to my list by moving. And uh, in future letters that I'll share with you, uh, again, you'll, you'll hear about this letter writing struggle that he has with writing to so many people and waiting and waiting and waiting to hear back from them. Back to his letter. I had a fairly busy week. Saturday, they had five inspections. That's quite a record for here. They're all really clamping down on us. If we had any more inspections, I would have to drop from nervous exhaustion. I think perhaps he's exaggerating a little here. We have to shake our blankets out daily. And five minutes later, they are full of dust. They should call this Camp Dust instead of Camp Swift. I bought a summer garrison hat, and today they came out with an order that we can't wear them. Nearly all the fellows here got stung that way. (laughs) I remember when Mike and I were in the Army, there were frequent uniform updates, which... I suppose, kept people employed, but we never quite saw the need for it. (laughs) I guess things haven't changed too much still. Back to his letter. Everything was satisfactory on the fifth inspection, so we all headed out of camp. We went to Taylor and had a nice time at a dance there. The next day I went swimming and had a swell time. I just love that word, swell. I think we should bring it back. Let's start Let's start saying that things that we really like are swell. That's a swell word. (laughs) There's a little pool in Bastrop, and it was really enjoyed. Monday, I was hit with my old faithful KP, and that's kitchen patrol. I would rather walk 20 miles than do KP. It's really rough. And I'm not sure whether he's hyperbolizing here (laughs) or whether working in a kitchen was tougher than walking 20 miles. Today, I had all I could do to keep awake. We're eating out in the field to give the cooks experience and to train us how to camouflage ourselves while eating. And this this kind of brings me back to the, oh, the naive young man who really doesn't know what he's getting into. He's still in the States preparing to go to war, not sure where he's going to end up what he's going to be eating, where, how. He continues, I got Kay's letter, and Kay is his younger sister, I got Kay's letter yesterday and really appreciated it. What about my big, my big brother? And his big brother was younger than he was. I haven't heard from him since he sent me the fudge. Did you get your shirt yet, Jackie? I hope it fits and you like it. Um, his comment about fudge, boy, I remember... His mom, my grandma, would make the, hands down, best peanut butter fudge ever, 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 ever. Time for lights out now, so I'll close with lots of love, comma, Murray. 
He uses his middle name there instead of Mo. And there's a P.S. I'm kind of short. He's not talking about his height here. Could you send me a couple of dollars? Thanks. Boy, how I wish a couple of dollars would fit the bill today, right? And in uh, future letters, the, the things that he asks for from home are mind-boggling, really, when, when I think of how little he asks for. I know he sent all his money home, and I came to learn later that his parents put his money in a, a, a savings account for him when he returned. The man who would be my dad was 19 when he wrote this. And I try to think back to when I was 19. Was I ever 19? Graduated from high school in 1977, I did, which would have made me 18 at the time. Going off to Smith College, an adventure, not knowing what I was going to be when I grew up or where I was going to go. Had no idea I would ultimately end up going to West Point or into the Army for, for many years at that age anyway. And uh, here he was, going off, doing his civic duty with no question at all that that's what he was supposed to be doing. If I were to brainstorm on any particular idea right now, I guess it would be the word war and uh, the things that come to mind when you think of war, right? The song that sticks out in my mind comes from Edwin Starr's War and Peace album, released back in 1970. You know, this the song entitled War, right? We probably all know the lyrics, War, huh, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. But other things come to mind, too. Innocence, loss of innocence, violence, horror destruction, pain, PTSD, fear, bravado, power, power, hungriness, manifest destiny, the strong over the weak, guns and ammo, noise, chaos, screaming, devastation, Tears, loss, gain? I don't know. It's a tough one. I could probably brainstorm for hours about that. What comes to your mind when you think of war? I'd like to transition now to my experience at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. The material in the second part is serious and uh, rather heavy, so be forewarned. Thank you. I recently visited some oldie goldie friends back in our old neighborhood, back in Woodbridge, Virginia. And uh, while I was there, my friend Christy asked what I'd like to do while I was there for a week. And other than working on my next book and my Water White series, I said I'd like to visit the Holocaust Museum. I had never been to it during our time living there and heard 
that it was an experience everyone should experience. Well, when I got back, and I, I went with her and her sister and and her niece, and we spent several hours there, and I knew I couldn't go to sleep until I wrote something about it. Um, I'd encourage you to go to my post on my website entitled Holocaust to see the photos that, that I have posted there. But I'd like to share what I wrote. There was a photo of a child, a beautiful child, that caught my attention, among many other things, in, in a hallway filled with pictures. And uh, his eyes are just haunting. He's a beautiful, healthy boy. And my caption for the photo is, A child, not an animal, a child. Here's what I wrote. I'd never been to the Holocaust Museum. I'd learned a tiny bit about the Holocaust in history classes. I'd taught Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl to my 7th grade language arts class and Night by Elie Wiesel four years in a row while teaching 10th grade English and I'd seen the movie Schindler's List. Every cursory experience I've ever had relating to the Nazi attempt to exterminate an entire population has left me in tears. I remember the first time I cried in front of my 10th graders, reading the part in Ellie Weasel's Night, where the prisoners are filed by and made to look at the latest hanging victims. One being an angelic-looking young boy, flailing and gasping for breath as he dies excruciatingly slowly because his tiny body... I cried every time I got to that passage, every year. I just returned from the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and before I entered, I thought I'd be immune from the horror, immune from the outrage, immune from what I already knew to be the truth of that despicable series of events culminating in a country's complicity and a madman's scheme. And I show a picture there of a family, or a class perhaps, not animals, people. And under that, I have a picture of a beautiful woman, not an animal, a beautiful woman. But I was not immune, and because I am still able to cry at the brutal video footage of heaps of emaciated bodies dragged, tossed, bulldozed into pits. I am reassured, and I'm reassured by the long line in front of the museum door and the crowds inside the museum on a Wednesday, and the odd hush of multicolored humanity walking as if in a trance through three floors of displays, and the visceral reactions I saw on most faces through my tears. But I cannot rest complacently 
and my reassurance, because this was not the only Holocaust. And as I type this, racial slaughter continues. Hatred, fear, and insecurity continue across the globe. Megalomaniacs in positions of power continue to frighten me, because for every tear-filled eye in the museum today, there's a stone-faced denier who will believe a lie. And I have a picture of three adorable children. Children. Happy children. Not animals. Happy children. I left the museum today with the same questions that have plagued me for decades. Why have we not yet evolved as a species? And how is it that anyone can look at a child, a beautiful woman, a family, and decide those beings are anything less than human? Have you ever been punished for something you didn't do? Asks a boy in the Daniels story exhibit of the museum. And I wonder, how could a child possibly understand the experience of a Holocaust if I can't even understand it? And there's a picture there of people, not animals, not criminals, people, and mugshots of a couple of men and and a child. I was struck by a fleeting moment of panic when I stepped into the large, overcrowded elevator in the museum after my friends and I made it through the security checkpoint at the entrance, which was much like a TSA checkpoint at the airport. And I I know they did that because of the, uh, the attack that happened at the museum in the past. Before the door closed, we were instructed by an official-sounding woman that we would be taken to the third floor of the museum. And then she stepped out, and the doors closed. We believed her. Millions boarded crammed rail cars with the understanding they'd be taken to work camps. Didn't they know? Didn't they know? Dear God, didn't they know? The photos I took in the museum today were mostly of the people and of inscriptions here and there, like the one that read, Where books are burned, in the end, people will be burned. And I no longer feel reassured. There were exhibits in the museum that um, I will I will never get the images out of my head. The film that broke through my immunity, I, I had to turn away because what I saw was unbelievable. What I saw were people like my mother, my sisters, my friends, their bodies disposed of like so much trash. I wonder how things might have been different 
had everyone had cell phones back then. But then I think, what difference really would it have made? Look at what we're seeing now. Look at the access to information and atrocities and visualizations of the reality of war going on today. On on the museum was a banner to remember Syria and what's happening there. And I know it would be a naive thought to think that once we are aware of an atrocity against humanity, that we could just say stop it and and it would stop. We could just make an appeal to reason, an appeal to humanity. The Holocaust Memorial Museum has a never stop asking why initiative. And I walked away from the museum asking how, how, how were these atrocities able to continue for for as long as they did? Is it because we are immune from, from these things? Is it because if it's not on our turf, it really doesn't matter? Like surgeons who have to steel themselves against losing a patient, have we become that way with the idea of war and death and mass devastation? Are we immune to to genocide when it's not in our neighborhood? With the knowledge we have today, with the ability to see real-time what's happening, someone could push the stop button. I know there's no stop button. That's ridiculous. But what does it take to stop atrocity on such a grand scale? My question about why we haven't evolved as a species yet plagues me. And I suppose if I could end this podcast with any kind of message or or plea to listeners, it would be to remain vigilant, to remain leery of edicts from above, to remember the human in humanity, and, and just even to remember, right? I mean, that's, that's why Ellie Riesel wrote Night. We didn't want to relive the horrors of his experience in the concentration camps during the Holocaust, but he needed for people to remember, to never forget. And perhaps every once in a while, We need to read books like his and see the images like I saw at the Holocaust Museum to feel the horror, to experience the inhumanity, and to cry and know that we still can cry. I would encourage you all to consider making a donation to the Holocaust Memorial Museum I've included a link to it with the show notes on my website at leadvillelaurel.com, where you will also find photos 
and a link to my post with the photos that I took while I was at the museum. If you felt today's episode was valuable, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share this with your friends. Perhaps you'll even consider supporting Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com forward slash alligator preserves. And please join me next time when I will share with you another experience related to the war in a different way when I participated in my first ever marathon, the Bataan Memorial Death March Marathon back in 2011. Thanks for joining me today. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs>